Amen. Well, last week, we learned that God reveals his will through his word. And once he's revealed his word and truth to his people, he then gives us a freedom to be able to choose either to obey or to disobey him. But what we need to be careful to understand and not misunderstand is that God's freedom, the freedom that we have to choose, and specifically even the freedom that we have to choose to disobey, should not be understood as God approving of sin or overlooking our sin or even worse, that he's blessing us because of our sinful action. Instead, what we learned is that God is gracious, but he is also very faithful to discipline his children when we are disobedient, when we're consistently disobedient and begin to go our way, he's willing to discipline us out of love to be able to turn us back into fellowship with him once again. Now, with that understood, after studying chapter 10 and now looking at chapter 11, we might be a little bit confused of the details and what happens in chapter 11. And the reason that we're confused is because chapter 11 Uh, God is really, really good to the people, but yet in chapter 10, they are really, really bad towards God. And so what we, the surprising part is we really are thinking that in light of their continued disobedience, that chapter 11 is going to be all about God just laying one on them, right? I mean, just dropping a ton of bricks on their head in discipline. Uh, We often think of God's discipline this way, don't we? That God is kind of like, that God's discipline is always immediate and it's always harsh. We always like to think of God sometimes as walking around with a spanky stick in his back pocket around heaven, just waiting for us to step out of line to pop us, give us a good pop to get us back in line. But the truth of the matter is, when the scriptures talk about the discipline of God, and even in the midst of God's people disobeying him, we find that God doesn't immediately turn to discipline. We find that God usually continues to give them grace upon grace upon grace. That he is loving, yes, but he's even loving in his, in his, in his, um, in his discipline of us, but he's long-suffering and he's very patient with us. And here's why. Because just like we as parents, we would much rather our children obey in light of the goodness that has been extended to them that goodness would lead them to repentance rather than discipline of them. And so what we find in the passage is even though they're deserving of the discipline of God, what does God do? He doesn't throw down bricks on their head, but he throws grace upon grace upon grace. And so the whole chapter is about God's saving grace to his people. Remember, the whole point here, though, remember, keep in the back of our mind, even though he's being good to them, it doesn't mean that he's approving of their sin. Even though he's good to them, doesn't mean that he's blessing them for the sin. In fact, what, this te- what the passage teaches us is that even when we are not good, God is often good to us. And that goodness should lead us to repentance. Now, I'm going to tell you this from the beginning. Uh, I always try to be as transparent as I can without being too transparent that I'll disrupt the apple cart here. But I don't feel like this message went real well this morning, the first service. So there you go, surprise. You got a message that didn't go over well. And so I'm going to try again at this thing. And if it doesn't go over well, it's not God's fault, it's my fault, okay? And so what we're going to do, and here's what I'm hoping that we do. I hope we walk away from this place this morning. And here's the overall idea. So if anything else I say doesn't make sense, I want us to be walk away overwhelmed by the depth and the height and the width and the breadth of God's grace. That's what I want for us today. All right, that's it. So we're going to jump into this. What we're going to see is we're going to see his grace everywhere, but I want to show you three specific evidences of God's grace within the chapter. Three things. Let me show you, first of all, first of all, God's grace is evident 
and a certain hatred towards God's people. So God's grace is evident in the certain hatred towards his people. Now, I'm not talking about God's hatred, but I'm talking about the world, the the fallen world, the lost world's hatred toward God's people. Pick up in verse 1, follow along, if you will, with me there. It says, Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all of Israel. So we can tell right off the bat that God's people, specifically the city of Jabesh, are, are in big trouble, right? They have been surrounded by their enemies, the Ammonites. The Ammonites pose the second greatest threat to Israel just behind the Philistines. They mean business. They've now encircled the city, and they're going to do one of two things. They're either going to wait it out and allow the people to starve to death in the inside, or they're going to wait in that long enough until they get weak, and they're going to go in, and they're going to kill and slaughter everybody that's in the city. This is the condition of God's people. They are helpless. They know that they can't do anything, and so the only thing they know to do is try to make a treaty with this guy. I mean, that's what you did during the old days. You get surrounded by your enemy, and you want to give up, so what you do is you try to get a treaty. So here's what they do. They send them a treaty saying, hey, listen, if you'll let us live, if you'll just leave us alone, we will become your servants, which essence has two parts to it. The first part is, is we're going to serve you like slaves. We're going to take care of you. Whatever it is that you ask of us, we're going to do for you. The second part was them to give tribute or taxes every single year to be able to give the Ammonites just to be able to leave them alone. So you're basically getting a, a butler and a banker, banker is what they're offering uh, to the Ammonites, all just to be able to live in peace. Now, that seems like the normal way that people did business during that day. But this man, Nahash, that's not enough for him. He wants something else. He comes back and says, hey, that's pretty good. I could use a butler and a banker, but I want one more thing. I want each of your right eyeballs. I want to gouge them out. Now, this is, this is the word of God, right? So I get a pass. I'm being gross. I'm not trying to be overly gross, but he wants their eyeball. Now, to me, that's a little bit overboard, would you say? It's one thing to take somebody's freedom. It's another thing to take their money. It's another thing to take the eyeball. And so you begin to look at this and go, man, what's this guy got against God's people? Why the eyeball? And then when you begin to study the scriptures, what you find, or or, or, people that commentate on this, what they say is really this is a political military move to bring security to the Ammonites. So you read a ton on, well, the reason that they're going to take an eye, is the, the right eye, is because if you're fighting, Uh, what you would do is you would hold up your shield with your left hand and you'd cover most of your face except for your right eye and your left eye would be covered and your right eye would be exposed and that's what you use to be able to fight the enemy. Well, that makes a lot of sense, right? And so if they take the right eye, there's no more fighting because you can't fight what you can't ultimately see. I think that makes a lot of sense. Then they sit in there and say, but what not both eyes? And I would say, and they come in and say, well, you don't take both eyes because if you don't have both eyes, it's kind of hard to plow the field. It's kind of hard to be, bring in the, make money and have a job if you're blinded in both eyes. So they let them keep the one eye because they're so benevolent. But what this ultimately does of gouging their eye, the reason behind it was driving is to bring financial and, and physical security to the Ammonites for the years to come. I think there's probably a part of that that's true. But the truth is we said all that, but really the word of God gives us the reason of why these people wanted to gouge their eye out. It says it right in the text. Notice what it says. It says, and thus to bring disgrace on all of Israel. He wanted their faces and have their eyes to be ripped out 
so that they would lose face, honor in front of the culture that was around them. There is hatred, and then there is this, right? There is hatred, and then there's this type of hatred that not only wants to defeat your enemies, you want to demean them in every way possible. In fact, this word disgrace that the Bible's using here uh, literally means to scorn, to mock, to belittle, or to make of nothing, make something nothing. And so why is this? What would cause such great anger in this man that he would use this inordinate way of punishing the people that they want their eyeballs to be taken out? Here's the reason, because this lost world hates God. A lost world, the world system hates God. I just, just let that reminisce in you just for a moment. They hate God. Why? Because God stands in opposition for everything the, the lost world's sinful heart desires. And the presence of God reminds them of that. Every time God has given them a conscience, and every time they hear the truth of God, that he opposes them, they feel guilty and they feel shame within us. This is how God works with all of us. Would we agree? Before we came to faith in Jesus Christ, God exposed us to his truth, and the Holy Spirit, along with, the, 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 um, uh, with our conscience within us, it began to what? be really rubbed raw. We begin to feel guilt and we begin to feel shame. And what we find in the word of God is that there's only way, two ways to come out from underneath that shame. Only two ways. One is to repent and the other is to reject. So here's how it looks when a person comes to faith in Christ. They're exposed to the holiness of God and all of a sudden they see their sinfulness in light of his holiness. And they realize that they're in big trouble. And they realize that I have fallen short of the glory of God. And I am deserving of the very death that God has promised for me. And so they come to that particular point, And then they relent and they say, God, no longer my way, but your way. And they repent and they place their faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ. That's one way to respond. The other way to respond is to reject the truth altogether. And to be able to sit there. And the way that we reject it and the way that the world rejects it is they try to ridicule it. They try to disgrace it. They try to make even not only the message, but also the people who promote that message and promote that God to belittle and to be able to, 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 to scorn and to be able to mock them. Why? Because if they can belittle the truth enough, it takes away their guilt and shame. And here's the thing. If they can't belittle it, throw it off enough, make people sound stupid. Have you, have you heard the news lately? Have you heard television lately? The butt of the majority of the jokes are people that call themselves Christians. And the reason for that is because the lost and dying world sits there and goes, that's ridiculous, this belief of yours. Now, look, if, if I were to speak at a conference, which will never happen, all right, this is the biggest conference I'll ever speak at. Uh, but anyway, and, I'm, and, and I shouldn't even be here. But anyway, if you're speaking at a conference and, and a person was invited, a Christian along with a Hindu, a Muslim, and a Buddhist, and they all got up on stage and they go, you know what, we're just all here to learn. We're just all here to learn about all these different religions and all these views, all these different ladders that move to God. And so what we're going to do is we're going to ask the Muslim and the Hindu and all these people come up. The Muslim would probably come up and probably be applauded. The Hindu would come up and people would sit there and go, man, I like that. Yeah, that's good. Right. The Buddhist would come up and go, yeah, man, I've been practicing a little yoga and all that kind of stuff. And I can, I can vibe with this. The Christian gets up and I guarantee you I've experienced this firsthand that the air is sucked out of the building. And the moment that they get up and they say something and they say, what is it that you believe? And you say, I believe that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And unless we repent and believe, we shall all likewise perish. 
there will be people, an inordinate reaction of anger that you just can't explain. You can't explain it. And the reason for all of that anger is because you have to respond to guilt and shame in one way or the next. And the only way that you can do that is either repenting or ultimately rejecting. And if they can't demean that message in the messengers enough, trust me, we have a whole history from the time of God until now. It's going around all the way around the world. You want to, if you can't silence by demeaning it, then you silence the messenger by putting them to death. If you think that I'm off here, let me use the scriptures to show that this is theologically correct. In the word of God, in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 12, listen to this closely. He says, John says, we should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Remember Cain and Abel? Remember Cain murders uh, 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 Abel? And what does the Bible say? He asks the question, and why did he murder him? Here's the answer. Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. It's exactly what we're saying right here. His brother hated his, uh, Cain hated Abel because Abel was a constant reminder of his own sin. It was a constant reminder of him trying to do for God, but his, good was not, his best was not good enough, and yet he saw Abel who had placed his faith in God, and he hated it, and it was a constant reminder of his sin and shame, and he has to do away with it. He scorns him, but that's not enough. He ends up having to put him to death. Second example, we, I could use a ton of them, John the Baptist. John the Baptist, Jesus himself said, was the greatest man ever born of woman. And what happens to the greatest man ever born of woman is Herod takes him and throws him into jail. But why did he throw him into jail? It's very simply to shut him up, to make him quiet, to diminish him, to, to, diminish him, to scorn him, to embarrass him, to belittle him. But you know what? It wasn't enough for a sweet wife. Remember his sweet wife, Herodias? Herodias comes along and says, hey, it's great that you put him in prison, but we need to do more. He goes, I don't want to do more. Uh, there's something about this guy. And she sits there and says, fine. So she goes, what a wonderful mother, gets her daughter to come and dress up in this scandally cloud outfit, right? What, what a great woman. And she goes, now go dance before Pops. So she goes and dances before Pops, and he's in front of all of his drunk friends, sits around and says, hey, this is great. This is, you please me so much. I'll give you up to half the kingdom. And what does she bring, and what does she request of them? A new dress? Jewelry? Treasure? No. She asked for the head of John the Baptist on a platter, on a plate. That's hatred. That's, that's, that's an ordinate type of hatred, right? That's going beyond why. Because when we're presented with truths in the echo of our guilt, you can't live underneath that guilt forever. You either have to relent and accept grace or you have to get the message and demean the message and get it away from us for everything that we're worth. Now, there's two ways to be able to respond to this kind of anger. Two ways to be able to respond to this type of anger. And I think, let, let me give you the two ways that are bad. These are both bad. And I'll give you the third, which hopefully is good. You could be like my generation, Gen Xers and that generation that is above me. I just don't want to pick on the generation above me. I, I want to pick on my generation. All right, Any Gen Xers? Any Gen Xers? Two. There's a lot of you that are Gen Xers, all right? You just don't know what that means. But anyway, and so, so you're like, I don't know what it means, man. Look, I, I'm good to get to work at time, all right? That's it. So just Gen Xers. Basically, we think differently. Gen Xers and millennials think differently. Would you agree? Millennials are like, heck yeah, man. We're kind of completely different. Y'all are messed up. All right, so let me tell you how it goes. Here's Gen, a Gen Xers are. Gen Xers, my generation, and even the one before me, is all about truth. 
It's all about truth. We want to know what the truth is. We want to hold to the truth. We're willing to hold to the truth. Now, that's good. Truth is good. Truth is real. Truth is something that you need to cling to. The mistake that my generation is often mad made is that we hold on to truth and do not demonstrate love in holding on and proclaiming that truth. And so what we'll do is we'll sit back and go, hey, but it's true. Uh, and, and it's kind of this attitude like, hey, we have the truth. You're not. You're a bunch of losers. Look at the scoreboard. We got the truth. And what happens is, and this is what's ultimately happened. It's truth without love. And the next generation, the millennials, the best that I can, I'm still trying to get my heart around it, they have rightly seen that there's something terribly wrong with that. That they've looked at that and they said, look, we get the whole truth thing, but a lost and dying world is never going to listen to you unless you come across and begin to love them and embrace them and serve them. You need to come and do that. You need to love them. You need to care for them. You need to show the love of Jesus Christ to them. But what sometimes millennials, and I say this, you're absolutely right. We are to demonstrate the love of God. The Bible tells us, he says, do your good works before men so that when they see your good works, they'll praise your Father who is in heaven. It is, you are supposed to live out the gospel in the everyday through what you say and through what you do. You've got it absolutely right. But if there is a little mistake in the millennial mind, it's this, is that we can be so loving and so caring. There seems to be this, this unhealthy desire for the world to receive you, to love you, and sometimes what happens is the, water be- the, the truth begins to get, become watered down a little bit. It begins to become watered down a little bit, just enough so that we're trying to now not be offensive to the point that we're taking away the offense of the gospel itself. So which one of these are true? Both of them are, are erroneous. Both of them are wrong. For me to be able to sit back and be able to hold the truth but not care about the people I'm trying to proclaim the truth to, that's not of God. For me to be able to love on the people, but not be able to show them the ultimate love by clearly telling them the very difficult word and gospel of Jesus Christ really is not love either, because really all I'm doing is air conditioning their train to hell. I'm making them comfortable, and I'm being received by them, and we've got a great relationship. Let, let, me, let me say this. What is it? It's both truth and love. It's got to be both truth and love. But here's what we ultimately understand. And millennials, I, I want to say this to you. I want to say it with as much love and affection as I possibly can. The world will respect you for serving them. There will be a level of respect of getting along with them. And they might even say things like, man, you're the type of Christian that I think more Christians can be like. But what the word of God promises us is that the more that you look like Christ, hold to the truths of Christ And when you begin to really parse what it means to follow Jesus Christ, and you begin to let them know that they are sinners in need of a Savior, half or some will repent and the others will reject the message and the messengers, no matter how much you want to be received. No matter how much you want to be received. Something that we need to embrace. We need to understand it. And let me, let, me, let, me, let me add something to this. Remember, this is all about grace, that God's grace is evident in the certain hatred towards God's people. Where's the grace in that? Where's the grace with people hating us because we're following of Jesus Christ? And let me say this. I believe the answer is in the response of Acts, in Acts chapter 5, verse 41, for the disciples. We've used this many times, but I think it's pertinent here. They are thrown in prison and they are beaten There was nobody demonstrating the love of God more than those disciples, the people that had spent time with God. 
And they had spent that time and they're preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and the people are like, shut up. It wasn't because they were mean. It wasn't because they weren't embracing of the people. It was because of the message that they were thrown into jail and prison and they were beaten. And when they leave, here's what they say. They says, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were accounted worthy to suffer dishonor, which is the same word as disgrace for his name. The grace that is shown when you and I are hated by a lost and dying world, not because we're, not because we're obnoxious, but because they hate us simply because of the message that we live out and we speak in love. That's not something that any of us want, but they are rejoicing in it. Why? Because it demonstrated that the saving grace of God had taken root in their life, and now there was a mu- enough of them to look just like Jesus that is now worthy to be able to condemn and hate. So Paul says this. Paul said in Colossians, I am filling up with the afflictions that were lacking in Jesus Christ. Here's what he was saying in that. Jesus Christ, when he was on the cross, when he died, all of the wrath of God towards those that he would save was satisfied at that point. Amen? Yes? But even though God's wrath towards men was satisfied at that point, man's wrath towards God was not satisfied by simply putting Jesus Christ to death. So Jesus Christ tells us in John chapter 15, verse 18, if the world hates you, in the Greek that means the world will hate you, know that it hated me before it hated you. There has to come a time for you and I, listen to me very carefully, Gen Xers and all those that are older, truth is very important, but your loving people in truth is just as important. You can't separate the two. Millennials and those, yes, loving people, you've got it right. There's so much we can learn about you and follow in your example. But I'm telling you, as much as you want to be embraced and accepted and not talked about by the world, the moment that you sit there and draw the line that all must repent and place their faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ, there will be those in the world who will hate you. But it's a demonstration, and take courage, because it is a demonstration that the grace of God has changed you into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ to the point that there's something worth worthy of disgracing. Does that make sense? Maybe it's just not a happy message. Maybe that's what it is. So let's move on to number two. God's grace is evident in the certain hatred of his people, but God's grace is evident in the certain transformation of his people. Now, I love this. Now, now they, they don't sign the contract yet, okay, the treaty, because what they ultimately say is they say, hey, look, all right, all sounds good. We'll sign it, uh, but what we need to do first is just give us seven days, Give us seven days to be able to go and see if somebody else will help us. Well, the commander here in in the Ammonites, for whatever reason, maybe because of pride, they decide, okay, we'll give you seven days, either thinking that people aren't going to come to help them or ultimately that what's going to happen is is that even if they come, they're going to be able to defeat that military of the Israelites anyway. And so what they do is they go out, and the first place they come is this place called Gibeah. Now, Gibeah is the hometown of Saul. Remember, he's our new, newly appointed king, right, in the chapter before. So they come to this town, and here's what they do. They bring the message, and they let them know what's happening. And the Bible in verse 4 says that the people begin to weep. They begin to weep when they heard what was happening about Jabesh. Now, we're, that's important to remember. I'm going to share this, something about that at the end. But here's what happens. They come in, and, and Paul, we pick up in verse 5. It says, now behold, uh, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, what is wrong with the people that they are weeping? And so they, said, so they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. 
And the Spirit, here's the key, the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen, and he cut them in pieces, and he sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. Who is this guy, Saul? Boy, what all the difference the Spirit of God on an individual makes, is it not? If you haven't been following with our story, if maybe this is the first time you were here, just a chapter ago, this guy that we've been reading about was a pansy. Just going to let you know, he was a pansy. He was scared of everything. Uh, one period of time, he spent a good period of his time looking for some lost donkeys from his daddy. That was basically his job. Didn't really have much of a future. And, and in fact, the word of God says and even identifies him, says he is basically no more than a lost donkey in the chapter that we studied last week. When it was time for him to take the stage to reveal that he had been chosen by God to be king, he, he wasn't sitting next to the platform. He was hiding in a trunk in the luggage. He was hiding amongst the luggage, the Bible says. He was just hiding. He didn't want to have anything to do with it. God had to give them a divine appointment to specifically tell him where this guy was. He was a wimp. And so now this wimp is now in this story completely radically changed. Now he is a leader. Now he is leading God's people to go and fight against the great Ammonites. He is a guy that now is even threatening even God's people, letting them know, hey, look, if, if you don't come out and do this, then I'm going to chop up your oxen into little bitty pieces like I did my own oxen. Now, people are like, well, big deal. Take the oxen. I don't care. I'm not going to go fight. But in essence, he's threatening their very life and their livelihood. They would have made a living through these oxen. You kill the oxen, guess what? There's no way to be able to support the family, no way to be able to put food on the table. So the fear of the Lord, the, the Bible says, came and, on, um, and, and, and it filled them. And they go and they ultimately fight. What a difference the Spirit of God makes. Here's what I want you to understand. The Holy Spirit is an agent of change. If you want to see people change, they must have the Holy Spirit be dwelling within them. I've said this statement many, many, many times. God never saves anybody that he doesn't change. If God saves you, he changes you. It's a promise from the word of God. Why? Because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, in the Old Testament, we see continually, we see the Holy Spirit come on people and then go away from people, just like we see here. He's empowered. Uh, it comes and rushes on him. He becomes a mighty warrior. He's just like, actually, that same word is almost identical to the word in the Holy Spirit rushing upon Samson in the book of Judges. So here's this timid man who becomes as mighty as, as Samson when the Holy Spirit is with him. And we see that time ago. The problem is that the Holy Spirit comes and goes. We get to the New Testament, completely different thing. Now this Holy Spirit that has enabled these men and women to do unbelievable things, very difficult things to be able to do, that they could not have done apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. Now you get into the New Testament, and we see the evidence of that Holy Spirit working in his people again. But now it's different. Why? Because it's not every once in a while that the Spirit comes on them. At the day of Pentecost, what, comes ha what happens? God sends his comforter, Comforter, the Holy Spirit, and he comes and he dwells in every believer. Now, every believer has the power of God dwelling in them that uh, enables them to bring about radical change inside of their life. God's bringing about that radical change. And we see that all the way through the scriptures. Think of Peter for just a moment. 
Little timid Peter denies Jesus not once, but how many times? Three times and once to a little girl. I think you know Jesus. No, 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 I don't know. Get away from me, little girl. You're strange, right? And he, and he begins to kind of move away. He, he's, he's wimpy with that. But what do we find on the day of Pentecost? The Holy Spirit comes. He goes and with great boldness begins to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ in front of the same people that crucified Christ and thousands end up coming to faith in him in one day. It's the difference the Holy Spirit makes. Then we, all, we, we sit back and we, we, we think of his, his disciples Disciples, what were they doing after the death of Jesus Christ? Hide behind locked doors? What do we see after the Spirit comes? That they go and they obey God's word to go to the, ultimate, to, to the ends of the earth, propagating the gospel of Jesus Christ. And almost every single one of them, but two, does what? Dies a martyr's death. Some boiled in oil, oil some cut in two, some hung up. How does that happen? The difference is the presence of the Holy Spirit. It allows God's people who are Saul's to become Samson's and the great might when, when, when the presence of God is there. He said, what does this have to do anything with the grace of God? Because we here as Baptists and as evangelicals, we preach the grace of God every Sunday and God's ability and power to be able to save us from our sins. Amen? We do. We preach it all the time. We have no problem talking about that aspect of God's grace. And it's true. It doesn't matter what you are, what you've done in the past, or what kind of sins that you've ultimately committed, how horrendous it is. God's grace is deeper, wider, broader than any of it. You cannot out-sin God. Where, where, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, amen? It does. You can't out-sin him. You say, Ken, you don't know what I've did. You don't know the depth of God's grace. We love to preach it. We're familiar with it. But where we miss it is there's another aspect of God's grace altogether. And the aspect of God's grace is the same grace that is meant to forgive you and to make you right before God and to make you righteous before God is the same grace that extends you and I to be the children of God and to be radically transformed into the, son, into the image of the Son of God that he has laid out for us. He didn't save us to remain the same. He saved us to look more like him. And you and I have the power of God at our disposal to do all of those things that Christians are running around saying it's impossible to be able to do. It's not, this Christian life is not, hey, give me a guilty message so I can pull myself up by the bootstraps and just help more. No, it's about us allowing Jesus Christ to live through us through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what the key is. That's what the key to the Christian life is. You've got people that sound like spiritual defeatists all the time. I just can't do what the Bible's calling me to do. I just can't do, this is just too tough. I can obey the soul that this is too hard. I can't do this. He's requiring me too stuff. But you are, you, are, you, are, you, you are in one aspect absolutely correct. Apart from him, you can do nothing. But because if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the power of God dwells in you, guess what you can do? You can do what we think is impossible. You can forgive those that have done horrible, horrendous things to you. You can, you can, you can forgive them. You can love the unlovable. You can remain in difficult circumstances and relationships because of the grace and the power of God that abides in you. Sometimes we sit back and go, really, well, I'd rather go fight the Ammonites. <laughs> You're fighting something far more difficult, and that is the sinful flesh in which you still remain. But the Holy Spirit is greater than that flesh. That's the grace that he's showing you, not just in your forgiveness, but in the ability to be able to change who you are. Number three, number three. God's grace is evident in the certain response of his people. 
God's grace and knowing his grace and him being gracious to us always requires a response of us. Would you agree with that? If somebody comes and they, they give you a, a birthday present, you go to your child and there it is and it, and it costs you $90,000. I don't know who you are. I like you though. But $90,000 and, and be my friend. And so you take the $90,000 and, and you go and you present it before the child and they sit there and they go, man, it's a cool gift. I like it. I like that a lot. And they walk away. It's, it's, you're sitting there going, something's missing here. What, what's missing? Thank you. Th- thank you, right? It, look, this gets under our skin too. It's as little as this. Traffic on A1A getting worse, no big deal. Go to Mumbai, you'll get over it. And you're sitting there and you're waiting for people. And then all of a sudden somebody's trying to get in and people are so far up to each other, like you're not getting in, you're not getting in, you're not getting in. And you sit there and go, you know, this is not right. I need to let them get in. So you let them get in, and they get in, and you're like, I'm so nice. Look at me. Hey, how you doing? And they get in, but they don't give you the wave. You, you understand what I'm saying, right? There's something missing here. At least give the wave. Now, that may be wrong, but we, we at least understand that when you've experienced something and been giving something of such great treasure, the, there is a correct response in this. So here's what happened. God gives them the victory. I'm not even going to bore you with all the details. Go back and read it. What ultimately happens is 330,000 of them gather together to go and fight the Ammonites. They send a word into, into the city of Jabesh, and they tell them, hey, listen, on the third watch of the night, which was between 2 and 6 a.m., we're going to come in, and we're going to defeat your enemies. And they're like, all right, sounds good. They go in, they defeat them all. The Bible says that they wipe them out to the point that even those that end up dispersing, the only ones, there's not enough of them for even two of them to be able to go in pairs. They're just one right after the other. They wipe them out. Now, what is the appropriate response to this type of grace? Because here's what I want you to see. This was all about God. Saul doesn't get the the glory, and the people don't get the glory. Why? Because it was through the power of the Holy Spirit that led Saul and the fear of God that came over the people that led them to do and empowered them to do the very things that God was calling them to do. So nobody can ultimately take take the, the, the glory away from God for this particular salvation. And so what we see is we see two things. I'll share this, and I'm going to close with this story. We see two ways to respond to the grace of God that he's shown to us, two appropriate ways. The first is to extend the grace of God to those who are around us, even those unbelievably undeserving. Look, if you will, in verse 12, then the people said to Samuel, who is it that said, shall Saul reign over us? In the chapter before, just so you know, there was a whole group of people that Saul was ordained the king, and there was a bunch of people going, we're not going to follow him. Well, that sounds vaguely familiar. Anyway, so uh, he says, he says, he goes, sorry, I just, wow, okay. So, um, and so anyway, we're not going to follow him, but here's, here's what happens. Here's what happens. They say, bring the men that we may put them to death. Verse 13, Saul sits there. Saul understands the grace that has been extended to them. He says, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in us. He's not thinking about getting back at people who have harmed him. He's been extended so much grace. He does the only appropriate response is because he's received grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. He now, what, extends that grace to other people. And then, so the first response to this kind of grace, the appropriate response is to demonstrate grace to other people. The second one is to worship and to repent to God, to renew ourselves before God. Look at verse 14. Then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. He's not talking about the fiscal, like, putting together of the kingdom. 
what he's still calling people to do, and it's kind of the whole idea of the text, is that God's goodness would lead them to repentance. That because they've experienced the grace of God in so many different ways that we've talked about, that now, in light of his goodness, they would say, how can we but come back, repent, and follow, and submit ourselves to the lordship of God? It's the appropriate response. Now, I want to I end kind of with a quick story. You, you guys got, got just three minutes left for me? Just three minutes some of you are like, no, dude, do this. All right, anyway, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it to you anyway because it's good for you. All right, there is a story behind this story that I think I need to tell you. It's a brutal story, though. There's a story behind this story. Now, when I preach through Judges, does anybody, was anybody here when I preached through Judges? Okay, there was a lot of you. You just don't remember it. And so preached through Judges, went through Judges not long ago. But if you remember back, I didn't preach through the whole book. Specifically, 19 through 21, I just didn't know what to do with. Okay, on your free time, just not before you go to bed, uh, go back and read it. It is the most disturbing, brutal, sickening events that you just about read anywhere within the text of Scripture. And I'm about to share it with you. Okay, so, but I'm going to give you the PG uh, uh, um, passage. So here's what happens in the story. This is the story behind this story. I want you to get it. Because I want you to understand the grace that they have experienced. This particular group of people, back in, in, again, Judges 19 through 21, there's a story of a Levite. And the Levite is traveling, and he's traveling through Gibeah, the same hometown as Saul, the Benjaminites. And he's traveling through the city, and he has a concubine that he's taken for himself. And as they're traveling through, he's looking for a place to stay. He ends up going into the city, to the town square of, um, uh, 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 of Gibeah. And during that time, it was appropriate for people to ask you to come over and to be able to stay at the house. That was, etic- that was the etiquette of the day. These people were so sinful, nobody wanted to invite them in the home. They were that far gone. So one of the men come up to him and said, listen, you don't need to be staying in this city square at night alone. You need to come to my house. We'll feed you. We'll take care of your concubine. We'll take care of your servant. We'll, we'll take care of your horses. We'll do everything else. Don't worry about it. So he comes and stays with them that night. Then things begin to go downhill really quick. In fact, the story sounds very much like the story of Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you remember that story? Here's what happens, and you'll see the parallel. As they're inside, the men of the city come around the gates, around this house, and they begin to bang on the door, and they begin to announce, send the man that came with you out so that we may have our way with him. Sounds very much like Sodom and Gomorrah, doesn't it? He refuses and says, we will not. The people keep calling for the man, calling for the man. What the man does is he ends up sending out the concubine instead. The next day, without trying to get too too overly graphic, the next day, the man who was married to the concubine, took the concubine, opens up the door, and there his concubine is dead at the doorstep. She had been abused in that way so harshly that it killed her. At that particular point, the man comes and he chops up his concubine into pieces. It's brutal. And he takes them and he begins to mail those pieces out to each of the tribes of Israel. When the tribes receive the package of flesh and they hear the story, they're enraged, righteously enraged. So they all gather together and all of the other tribes of Israel surround the tribe of Benjamin, there at Gibeah, the same city. And they say, never since the time we've come in from Egypt, that we've been delivered from the Egypt, have we ever seen such wickedness before. Justice must be done. Send out the men who are guilty. 
Send out the men who are guilty. And he goes, and then we will leave you alone and injustice will be done. The city was so wicked and so perverse that they failed to see these men as being guilty, even in light of their actions, their sinful actions. They say, we will not, we will fight to death instead. Now, this is three chapters. I'm trying to sum it up in three minutes. But what ultimately happens is they begin to fight. They fight again. And finally, the rest of the, the, the tribes of Israel defeat and more than defeat the tribe of Benjamin. Remember, Gibeah, Saul's hometown, same one that they're that, that, that going to be able to help now. This particular group was whittled down. 25,000 men da- were dead, and only several hundred people were left. Men, men were left. That's all that was left. 25,000 were wiped out. And as they're wiping them out and as they're killing them because of the justice that they felt like needed to be done, all of a sudden the Spirit of God began to move on the people and compassion began to sit in. And they begin to be overwhelmed with compassion on these violators, on those men that were sinful, and there's, there's people that were sinful. And all of a sudden what they decide to do is they say, we've got to stop. If we wipe them out, then we're wiping out one of the brothers of Israel. One of the 12 tribes will be wiped out. And where will they be? And they all begin to, to, to weep. Now, before that happens, they also enact justice to Jabesh. That city, you know, the one that was surrounded? Remember that? That one that was surrounded that we talked about in the beginning? Do you this or I'll keep talking? All right, all right. So surrounded. That city was the only city in all of Israel that didn't come to enact judgment on Gibeah. So they're angry with them too and said, because you sat by and let this injustice happen, we're going to come and we're going to wipe you out too. And they go and they wipe out every human being except for 400 virgins that are there. Wipe them all out. And as they begin to have mercy on both of these and realize that justice has been done, they then go to Gibeah and they say, we need to bestow grace and compassion on them. And they take the men that are left and there's 400 women from Jabesh and they allow them to be able to come together to get married, to take them as their wives. And they allow them to begin to build homes and rebuild their city of Jabesh and of Gibeah once again. Now at this particular point, It's grown over a period of time. They've developed over a period of time. The scriptures, because of that background, begin to make far more sense. When he ends up chopping up that oxen and sends them out, what they're reminded of is the wickedness and the cost of their own wickedness and the need for judgment and the blood that was ultimately shed and the innocence that was shed. And that's why when the, new, the, the word first comes in chapter 4 to those of Gibeah, it says they begin to mourn. Why? It reminded them of their own sin. It reminded them of their own need. It reminded them of the same grace and mercy that was shown to them. So what do they do? They cannot help but to respond. And they respond by coming and submitting themselves to the lordship of God and being a part of his army to be able to fight along with him with the glory of God. Here's what I would ultimately say. Grace saturates this passage, and the grace of God saturates us all. If I get up here and tell you, and just all the time tell you, that there is a true, literal, fiery hell awaiting for all those who remain in their sin and do not repent, that's true. (laughs) It's true. And we need to hear it especially when it comes up through the word of God. But you do not win friends with that message. You do not have a lost and dying world going, hey, we want you to represent it. You don't. I'm not being 
ill towards the world. I'm just telling you the reality. We love the world, the people in the world, because we want to get the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. But the reason that we do it and what drives us to be able to do those things is not the fear of that wrath, but is rather a holy understanding of the mercy that he has shown for us. And the mercy that he's shown for us is what leads us to repentance, just like it did with the people of Gibeah. Does it make sense? I hope so. You're here and you're apart from Jesus Christ and don't know him. He loves you. Don't allow the fear of the wrath of God per se. It might be a little bit good. I'll let God weave that in. But let his goodness and his mercy and his death on the cross and the fact that the weight of judgment was placed on him so that you would escape it, let that lead you to faith in him. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you. We thank you. We thank you for this morning. And God, kind of rough, rough stuff. God, I just pray this morning that we move our hearts. Only you can do it. We're completely dependent upon the Holy Spirit this morning. God, I pray when we leave this place, we will say, what a mighty God we serve. What great grace we enjoy. Now let us respond appropriately to that grace. God, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand. Let's stand. I'll be standing here. Just do business with God. Pray to him. Repent. Turn your life over to him, whatever it is. I'm going to be standing here. If you need prayer, if you want to pray, whatever it is, let's just do business with God just for a few more moments.